And if you're joining us in the midst of this, uh, this sermon series, we're in the Colossians, the wonder of the gospel. And we're in the book of Colossians. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Uh, at Evangel Church, we don't put stuff up on the screens. We actually just ask that you bring your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. Come see me after the service. I'll get you a Bible. Uh, if you have your phone, you can pull it out. Go to myevangel.church forward slash Bible, and there's going to be a great Bible app there that you can download on your phone. But why don't you turn with us to Colossians chapter 2, and let's just, right from the top, we take notes in this church because we believe when we write it down, it, it just accesses a different part of our brain right, when we write things down. So we take notes here. So if you're taking notes, write this down. The fundamental answers to knowledge, reality, and existence, all right, the fundamental answers to knowledge, reality, and existence are found in the person, Jesus Christ. The reason I wrote the main thing statement this way is because it closely reflects another definition. And that's the definition of the word Philosophy, and we're going to be exploring this a little bit today. The word philosophy is defined by Oxford Pocket English Dictionary as this the study of the fundamental nature of knowledge, reality, and existence, especially when considered an academic discipline. But today I am convinced that Paul speaks directly to these sentiments in Colossians 2 1 to 9. And if you have your Bibles, just turn there with me. The fundamental answers to knowledge, reality, and existence are found in the person, Jesus Christ. Christianity, though it gives answers to our deep philosophical questions, is more than philosophy or ideology. The Christian walk is this surrender to the person, Jesus Christ. And it's a coming into alignment with his heart as we grow in relationship with him. The fundamental answers to knowledge, reality, and existence are found in the person, Jesus Christ. But let's simplify it. Let's make it a little more portable for your brains because I realize that's a fairly big statement. Let's make it more portable. You ready? To know Jesus is to know. To know Jesus is is to know. So let's dig in to the teaching of Paul the Apostle as he writes to the, this church in Colossae that he's never met. And he writes this in the first century. Colossians 2, 1 to 9. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have, been see, who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. 
And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Paul speaks to a profound truth that even in his suffering, he begins to talk about his suffering. Even in his suffering, he holds up his suffering to this fledgling church. This is a fairly new church he's writing to. Knowing the fragility of of their newly birthed church, Paul seems very intentional about being real about his suffering. Uh, When Paul writes this to the Colossians, he's actually in prison. He's been in prison for his preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he's in this state of suffering, and he doesn't hide it from the church, but more so, he talks about the hope that he has found. He talks about even in the midst of his suffering, he has hope, and he's able to stay the course because of Jesus. He's hoping that this young, fledgling church, too, will understand that even when persecution comes, even when suffering comes, even when the circumstances of the world come against you, that you can walk through because there's always going to be a hope. Notice Paul's claim in verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Here is Paul's thesis. This is Paul's big idea. This is his main thing statement. He's already declared Jesus of Nazareth. Right? Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus that grew up in Nazareth, Jesus who walked the streets that many of those that he's preaching to understood walked, uh, preached in the synagogues, in the cities that these people would have visited. This Jesus, he says, was the image of the invisible God. He's already said that, that Jesus was God. He's already proclaimed that the mystery of salvation has been made known, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's already stated that. But now he's bringing it to the climax. Now he's bringing it to the main thing. And here's where Paul puts a definitive period to that which he has taught up until now. He tells us, in Christ are hidden all. Can you say that with me? In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. To know Jesus is to know. So why does Paul make this definitive statement? Well, it seems that there were those within the church of the first century and even within the church of Colossae who wanted to bring some outside agendas and ideas to play when it came to the Christian faith. They wanted to bring some extras, some stuff that they would have to do in order to be saved. And he says this in verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul knows that in the absence of leadership, there will be people and there will be ideas that fill the vacuum. Because that's what happens. That's human nature. Paul's concerns are not without merit because we know this to be true. That without leadership, things and ideas and people will fill that vacuum very quickly. I was listening to a podcast with Andy Stanley and he had um, Donald Miller on. I don't know, some of you may remember Donald Miller. He wrote a book uh, probably over a decade ago called Blue Like Jazz. You may remember, some of you may remember that book. Is fairly popular. And Donald Miller is now the, uh, the CEO of a company called StoryBrand. And what he does is he does consulting with companies and corporations to help them with their branding. 
And he told of the story that he was meeting in this urban office and it was in a high rise. And he had about 120 people. It was a fairly large room, executives and their teams. And he stood up before them and he said, I have something very important to tell you. I want to teach you something about leadership. I have something very important to tell you. But I'm not going to tell you here. I'm going to meet you out on the sidewalk in front of this building outside of the main doors. I'll meet you there. And then he just walks out of the room. Well, within a few minutes, he's downstairs and he's out on the sidewalk. And within a few minutes, five, six, ten minutes, 120 people. It's a, it's a lot of people. That's a lot of elevator rides. All of a sudden, he's got 120 people out on the street with a towering sky rise going, with business people walking around them. And he had waiting for him a little platform and a megaphone. And so he stood up on this platform and he pulled the megaphone up to his lips and he said, Everybody move in. I don't want you to miss this. And so 120 people in this city, on the sidewalk, outside, gather in, and they're leaning in with anticipation for what Donald Miller's about to say. And Donald Miller simply says this, people will go where you tell them to go. And he puts down a megaphone and he walks back into the building. Paul knew all too well the dynamics of leadership and the tendency for human beings to look for people or ideas that will tell them clearly where to go, even if it's the wrong place to go. This is how we are wired. This is how we are made because we are made in the image of God. We are made to be those that, that turned our eyes to God as our leader, as the, our source. And so he steps into the void here with this truth about Jesus. And here's where we're going to spend the majority of our time today is as Paul explains what he means about Jesus being everything that you need. So he continues in verse 6, driving home the simple truth that to know Jesus is to know. He says this in verse 6, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding with thanksgiving. Now, we could camp out in this verse. We could probably do a whole series in this verse. It's so rich. Thomas Nelson, he says this about, about Colossians 2, 6. It should be up on the screen. Paul uses four words to describe the Colossians' walk with Christ. The tense of the word translated rooted denotes a complete action. The believers have been rooted in Christ. This is past tense. This has already happened. The next three words, built up, established, and abounding, are in the present tense, showing the continual growth that should characterize every Christian's walk with Christ. In other words, when you gave your life to Jesus, there was this moment where you were rooted in him as your source. He changed you. You became new in him. It was a transformative moment. But Paul wants to make it clear that it goes beyond just being rooted. It goes beyond just that moment. It goes now into the present tense. It comes now into today. Sunday, May 3rd, Powell River, BC. It comes into today. It comes into today, the present tense. It moves into, and he communicates his expectation that we will continue to look more and more like Jesus every day. Being rooted in the source, but then growing, being built up, abounding, in looking more and more like our source. Continual growth is the outcome of being rooted in the source. I have a, I have a confession to make. I'm not a big fan of blackberries. 
Now, don't get, I, I love the fruit. I love the fruit. I love the berry. I just don't like the plant. And I know that that's a controversial statement in a town that celebrates this invasive species once a year. But I just do not like blackberry plants. Now, my backyard, I have a few of them. I have a few of them that pop up every spring and every summer. I'm at war with blackberry plants. Now, when it comes to blackberry plants, the only way to deal with them is to literally dig them out right down to the root, right down to the last tip of the root. Otherwise, they just keep coming back. And so unfortunately, I have these blackberry plants that are growing out of retaining walls and cracks in concrete, and they're in these little hard to, and so I will cut them back as far as I can get back, and I'll, I'll even like poison them, I'll do anything. I'll do anything trying to kill these things. But as long as a blackberry plant is rooted in its source, a blackberry plant's going to do what a blackberry plant does. It's going to grow it's going to multiply, and it's going to bear fruit. As long as it's rooted in its source, that's what it's going to do. I put it to you today that the reality of the life of a believer is being rooted in Jesus. And as long as you are rooted in your source, you're going to grow, you're going to multiply, and you're going to bear fruit. That's what we're called to. So the question is, are you growing? Are you multiplying? Are you bearing fruit? You can hack at the believer. You can send the storms and the testing. You can persecute and cut them down. But a follower of Jesus is going to do what a follower of Jesus does. Grow, multiply, and bear fruit. But here's where we need to define some things. To, to know is, it's more than an intellectual exercise. To know Jesus is to be changed by Jesus. This is more than an, a knowledge piece. This is a knowing piece. To know Jesus is to be changed by Jesus. It's to be rooted in him as your source. To know Jesus is to know, verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. An empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. The New King James Version, I love the way New King James says it, says it this way, beware lest anyone cheat you, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. While researching for this sermon, I was sitting at a coffee shop and I just wrote this down. I just wrote down in my notebook, to reduce the Christian faith to philosophy, an idea or archetypal language is to be cheated from the transformative power of relationship with God through Jesus Christ. In the first century, there are two types of heresy and teaching that, were, that had arisen in the first century church, and Paul is addressing these here. And these are the two. The first came primarily from the Jewish people. And it was this idea that Jews and Gentiles alike needed to be subjected to the law of the Old Testament, needed to be subjected to the law of Moses when they came into faith. This, this, this was 
This was found during the early days of the Gentiles, where the, the Gentiles, non-Jews, were getting saved and they were getting filled with the Spirit. And the Jews among them started demanding, okay, this is, Christianity is a, is a Jewish right. This came from our Jewish faith. And so you have to come under this law that we've been under. And so there comes to a point where Paul, he addresses this. He actually leaves the city where he sees revival happening. He goes back to Jerusalem and he has this moment with what they call the Jerusalem Council. And this is where the apostles gather together and they're trying to figure this thing out in the partnership of the Spirit, right? This church is new. It's growing. It's, everything's happening. And so they're trying to walk together in wisdom. And so here's what happens in Acts 15. Paul's talking with the Jewish council, the, the Jerusalem council. And he says this in Acts 15, 10 to 11. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? He's talking about the Jewish law. He's talking about the law of Moses. He's talking about the over 608 laws that they had to follow. Okay? He says, now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke a burden on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor us have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And Paul returns us to this, this moment where Jesus is all that we need because Jesus fulfilled the law. He lived it out perfectly because we can't. And that was the point of the law. The second teaching that we see coming up in the first century was from the Gnostics. And the Gnostics, they believed that only a select few could be saved. Uh, here's what the Gnostics did. They believed that, that the, the story went that Jesus had shared special knowledge. Okay? Special knowledge to either Mary, some of them said to Matthew, and some of them said to Peter. And unless you knew this special knowledge, you weren't going to be able to be saved. Very cult-like, the Gnostics. This is how cults are formed, right? Cults become very exclusive, right? Very exclusive, very, you can't get in unless you know the secrets. And Paul's saying here, no, we made the mystery of the gospel, Jesus made it known to everyone. It's open source. It's open source. And the Gnostics, they also believe that the body is totally corrupt, all right? They believe this flesh, this body that we're in, is totally corrupt, and so we're not going to be held accountable for what we do with this body, only what we do with our soul and our spiritual life. They would say this body is completely separate from our soul and our spiritual life. So they, they would say, you can do whatever you want with your body, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. This is the Gnostic teaching. And of course, we know that not to be true. And we're going to talk about that a little bit. So to the Gnostic teachers, he's saying, the answers to the deep philosophical questions of life are found in Jesus Christ. No more, no less. He's saying there's no extras. There's no add-ons. There's no special information. There's no special knowledge. It is Jesus. To know Jesus, to know Christ is to know. The fundamental answers to knowledge, reality, and existence are found in the person, Jesus Christ. Anything else, any addition or subtraction from that is to be cheated, is to be cheated. He says, don't let anybody cheat you with empty philosophy. Don't let anybody cheat you. In verses 9 to 10, Paul puts the nail in the coffin, particularly the Gnostic teachers in the first century. 
For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Right? The Gnostics believed the body was kind of a throwaway. Paul's saying, no, 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 no. For in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity, God dwelt in a body. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Paul's very intentional about his his language here, particularly as it relates to the the teachings of the Gnostics. Again, they believe this body, that it it was beyond redemption, and so it did not have have to come under the lordship of Jesus. And Paul is clear that Jesus was the whole fullness of deity, God dwelling in flesh, dwelling in the body, Now, you might say, Lucas, do we have Gnostics running around teaching this stuff today? And and, and I would respond to this observation. I already already spoke a little bit to kind of the cult-likeness of the Gnostic teaching of the first century, right? Where it was very exclusive, right? Very hierarchy. Unless you know the secrets, you're out. But there's another part of the Gnostic teaching that just with observation, as we look at our Western world, I would say that we're fairly Gnostic, on this idea of the body being somehow separate. When I look at the church, when I look at just the Western world in today's kind of society, even within Canada, we kind of act as though the sins of the body are not a big deal. We, we just do. When, when you think of first century Christianity, it, it, it would have looked completely different than what we kind of have going on in the Western world today. We kind of, we wouldn't say that out loud that the sins of the body don't matter, but we kind of act like it's true. We kind of act like what we do with this flesh, what we do with this body, somehow can be kept separate from our spiritual life. And here's the point Paul is trying to make. Paul's saying, listen, There's no separation. Your body, soul, and spirit are so intertwined. There's no separation. What you do in the body affects your spiritual life. What you do in the body affects your emotions and your mind. What you do in your body, it makes a difference. It affects all of it. Contrast, you know, Jesus when it comes to, you know, it's not a big deal what we do in our body, contrast with that what Jesus take on sin. Jesus said, if your hand offends you, cut it off. If, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Now he's talking in metaphorical language, but he's using some strong metaphorical language here. He's trying to make a definitive point. Jesus makes a definitive statement that with these extreme metaphors because he knew that what you do with your body is not contained to just your body. It affects your soul. It affects your spiritual life. There's no disconnect. There's no separation between our flesh, our body, and the rest of what makes you you. So he invites you to be rooted in him as the source. The one who who lived in a body and yet overcame the temptations of this world. He invites you to that process of every day being built up established, abounding in him, bringing that into your today, challenging yourself to know that the spirit of God is here to help you do that today, even in your body, even in what you do with your body. To know Jesus is to know the fundamental answers to knowledge, reality, and existence are found in the person, Jesus Christ. 
I want to conclude with this as our worship leaders come back to lead us one final time. I want to close with a question because I believe that a season of wrestling with this question will change your life. I, I really do. I, I believe that. I believe a season of wrestling with this question could change your life. And the question is this, why do you exist? Why do you exist? It's an age-old question. This is a question that philosophers over the span of time and human existence have spent their lifetime unpacking and trying to bring uh, an answer and realize. This is a question that the pursuit of answers to this question have caused people over the span of history to engage in following leaders that will just simply give them a direction, whether that's a good or direction or a bad. You know, some arguably led for good, but some movements led us to the darkest and most evil places of human history. The pursuit of knowing deep in the human heart is what gives power to ideas, ideas that have led us to great innovations, but have led us to some pretty horrible places. Why do you exist? And listen, Paul's not against the study of philosophy. I want, you, I want to say that just off the get-go. Paul, when we, when we see his time in Athens, we know that he studied philosophy because he was quite good at engaging the philosophers in Athens when he visited that city. He knew the philosophies of the day of the first century. So we know that he's not against studying philosophy, what he is against is when philosophy takes precedent over Jesus because he was convinced that Jesus, all, everything, all the answers that philosophy set out to answer were found in Jesus. But I do fear because I do believe that it's possible for a churchgoer to have a philosophical Christianity a philosophical Christianity, to be subscribed to the Judeo-Christian principles of life and living as an ideology, as a good idea, a good set of principles, but to miss the opportunity to know Jesus. Some of the most influential people on the world stage in the areas of philosophy and ideology right now, today, I could name a bunch. Some of you listen to their podcasts. Right now, they're popular, globally popular right now, and they're espousing Judeo-Christian, Judeo-Christian principles and ideas. You know, some who are holding up God and Jesus and angels and Satan as archetypal representatives of the human condition, right? Uh, as stories, as characters that define the human condition and humanity, but are holding Jesus at arm's length as an idea or a philosophical answer to the question, why? And it's incomplete. It's only halfway there. It's not enough. It's not enough to be a churchgoer and have a philosophical understanding of Christianity. Paul is saying, no, to know Jesus is to know. To know Jesus is to know. To have relationship with Jesus, with the one who created you, who has instilled divine purpose in you is to know. It's to know why you exist. It's to know why you're here now. To know Jesus is to know the fundamental answers to knowledge, reality, and existence are found in the person, Jesus Christ. 
I said it at the beginning of our time together. I just want to drive it home one more time. Christianity, though it gives answers to our deep philosophical questions, is so much more than philosophy or ideology. Christianity is a walk of surrender to the person Jesus and a coming into alignment with his heart as we grow in relationship with him. Rooted in our source, inviting him into today to change us, to cause us to grow, to know Jesus is to know 